0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz interview series with jazz pianist and composer Billy Childs. He just released an impressive new CD, 2017's Rebirth. Billy was groomed in L.A. and attended the USC Community School of the Performing Arts, earning a Bachelor of Music degree in composition under the tutelage of Robert Lynn. Then he was discovered by trumpet legend Freddie Hubbard, landing a record deal with the Wyndham Hill Records in 1988. He has played with folks all over the map, Yo-Yo Ma, Sting, Renee Fleming, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Chick Corea, the Kronos Quartet, Wynton Marsalis, and he's quite popular as a composer in his own right. So please, get to know Billy and dig this interview, my friends.
1: Billy, thank you for taking a minute out today. I
0: appreciate it.
2: Oh, no problem.
1: Before we uh, get started with everything here, I want to just kind of get a general idea of what's been going on with you lately.
2: What's been going on? Man, that's a loaded question. (laughs) Uh, Wow. You know, actually, I came to the end of a long period. I came to the end last, well, a couple of weeks ago, of a long period of having like about a year and a half of always having something to compose. So that was great, you know. I had like, for the past year and a half, I had some deadline or another that I had to finish. Sometimes I had like four at the same time, sometimes just one, but always I had something hanging over my head that I needed to complete, and I... I just finished this choral piece for the l a master choral, and that was kind of the last thing I had to do for a while. so I feel a little you know relieved, but then also that anxious feeling of like, okay now what's next you know and so that that was that was kind of it but also pla in 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 between all of that i've been you know the um the playing a lot in the and rebirth the album that came out and And uh, all of that, you know, has been going on. It's been crazy. So talk to
1: me about Rebirth. It's your newest album. It's a great listen. I I want to get kind of an idea of how you feel about it and what went into making this album.
2: Well, I mean, I feel really good about it um, for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, it's kind of named that Claudia Acuna and I came up with the uh, the title. And it's kind of appropriate for a few reasons it was kind of a rebirth of me going back to a small group format i suppose you know i had been doing for the past like maybe 10 15 years these kind of expanded projects you know kind of with lofty ideas like my jazz chamber ensemble um, which is like piano bass drums acoustic guitar harp and sax with a string quartet and I did two albums of that. I had like a lot of classical commissions that I was doing. I had a Laura Nero project that I did with a multitude of singers and instrumentalists and a jazz chamber nucleus. That kind of it was it was nice to go back to playing and writing for a small group format. Kind of the the lean instrumentation uh, gave me a lot more opportunity to just play the piano, which uh, I discovered I missed doing, you know, um, like uh, to that degree. That was kind of what went into making it. That was the motivation. It's like, let's return to this. And plus, I wanted to return to some of the songs that I had done back in the days when I was doing that, like in the late 80s and early 90s when I was with Wyndham Hill Jazz and later with Stretch Records and Shanaki Records. You know, I, I did that a lot more, and I wanted – and the, a lot of the Wyndham Hill records are out of print. You can't get them on iTunes or Amazon unless they're used or something. And um I wanted to redo some of those tunes and recast them with this new personnel. So that was – kind of all of that went into making it. Right on. So talk
1: to me about your childhood in, in Los Angeles. How did you get into jazz? And get to this point where you've had a career in jazz.
2: You know, I just turned 60 years old in March. When I was growing up, jazz was kind of a lot more prevalent, you know, on radio stations and in, in, in music and movies. It was pervasive in my childhood. And I the two people that kind of influenced, introduced me to jazz were my older sister, Joy, who used to bring around jazz records to the house, and I would listen to them. And also my next-door neighbor, uh, a musician named Leon Biscara, who who um, also, he played piano. He played jazz piano, and I would go over his house, and he taught me, like, I would consider these like my really first piano lessons. Like, he taught me cantaloupe island on the piano. He taught me song for my father. Uh, He taught me stuff that he you know, made up. Um, I must have been about 11 or 12 or something when he started teaching me these things. I remember really taking to it. And so I, you know, then I I would run into people who were like jazz, you know, uh, enthusiasts. Uh, My sister's boyfriend um, knew a lot of the L.A. DJs, you know, like there's a guy, Jay Rich, and another guy, uh, Rick Holmes, uh, that he knew and were friends, and they would bring over these albums, and I would just listen to them. It was almost like uh, his his house was a record store, and I, I could listen to all of these jazz albums, and, and that influenced me a lot. So let me ask you that you start out on the keys at the age of six. You've been at it mm-hmm. for a long
1: time. At 16, you went to the USC Community School of the Performing Arts, and pretty quick mm-hmm. thereafter, you were in demand there in L.A. What happened? How did you fast-track all of this to a point where you were really out in front of people so early in your life?
2: Well, actually, I took lessons when I was six. It kind of went in, one out the like formal lessons. I didn't learn much, I don't think, except I did learn something. I learned how to finger a scale, you know. And I learned, you know, basically how to read music, like what the spaces were and the lines were in the treble and bass clef. I learned all of that. I really I, I'm in serious when I say like Leon um gave me my first real piano lessons that I could use, you know, that I that I enjoyed and that actually made me expand, but where the real expansion began was when I was 14. My parents sent me to a a highly academically rated boarding school um, which didn't have any of the social Things that I was used to living at home, but had a piano there. For the first time, I heard uh, Keith Emerson, and that really made me. I said, a light bulb clicked, and I said, I want to do this for a living. And I started um, trying to learn his music uh, uh, by by listening to it on a record, and then going like kind of almost the length of a football field to to the um, piano, and just remembering, trying to remember and retain what I had just heard. And, and I developed my ear that way and also developed piano playing skills. I couldn't read at all. Um, then when it was evident that I wasn't making any progress academically at the school and my whole existence was music, my parents brought me back for from age, to age 16. You know, they brought me back to L.A. and I just went to Hamilton High School for public school here but but I took all kinds of piano lessons and and I took classical piano lessons and theory lessons from the USC community schools um and that's kind of where I I I really had an incredible theory teacher um Marianne Usler who kind of just taught me the basics of theory and and I'm and and in that class I met Larry Klein too we were both 16 and we just became friends. So then, later on, I, I got so good and so advanced so quickly at theory, um, that I was actually, in two years, I was actually able to qualify to go into USC, uh, as a composition and theory major, which I did. And then Larry got the, he took a different path and started playing with a lot of people, uh, but then he ended up, playing with freddie hubbard and he got me the gig with freddie hubbard like my senior year in um in uh usc and then later on when i graduated i got the gig with freddie so that's kind of the story of of how i got out there being a part of a freddie hubbard outfit had to be a
1: huge learning curve at that point in your life how big was that for you
2: uh, it was huge. It, it's like I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it wasn't for Freddie Hubbard. Like Freddie Hubbard, you know, he, he there's a lot of stories about how flawed he was, you know, but nobody can deny that he's like at least one one of the five greatest trumpet players ever to play jazz. And one thing he was, he he was a very when it came to music, he had integrity, you know, incredible integrity. In, in every regard, like not just music, not, not just like how good the music should be, but the importance of passing on the legacy of it. And what I mean by that is like he could have gotten a lot of piano players, you know, to play with him, but he, he chose to, to have me, you know, with him. And I, I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, I, I was good enough to at least handle the gig, but also, and I would work for what he would pay, you know. But more importantly, I think he felt a connection that, that he should be having somebody in his band who was young and who could, like, kind of pass on the legacy. I, I, I really believe that. And he, cause he, you know, put up with, You know, he was really extraordinarily patient with me in terms of, like, allowing me to grow musically in his group. I mean, I would screw up, and he would just sit there and let me screw up until I got it right, you know, on stage, you know, until if he couldn't stand it anymore, he'd turn around and say, lay out. But, you know, so I learned everything from him.
1: And then you land your first record deal with Wyndham Hill Records in 1988. How big was that?
2: That was really big. You know, I had met on one of these tours, I think we were playing a Russian River in San Francisco, um, jazz festival, and I met Andy Norell, a steel drum player, on one of those tours. He was saying, yeah, man, I have this production group called Hip Pocket Records. Man, I'd like to produce you. I like your playing. And I And at that point, I didn't really pay much attention to him, you know, but then I put out this record called Midland of a bunch of, like, just did it myself, you know, of a bunch of, like, side A was a bunch of jazz tunes and kind of like funk tunes, and side B was, like, real ambitious, like, there's two tunes, and they were like 11 minutes and 13 minutes of, like, real ambitious music. No improvisation, all composed. So I put out this record, and a friend of mine, Brandon Fields, gave me this list of record labels I sh- I could send it to. And one of them was Andy Norell, you know, which I didn't know at the time when I was sending. And he's the only one that said, yes, let's do something. And so he had a production company, kind of an imprint, uh, with Wyndham Hill Jazz. And so I, I I had like a um, a five record deal with them, but I ended up doing four, um, and it was really great. And that that kind of put me on the map in terms of like it was the first representation of anything that was wi- widely distributed, and so people knew who I was in other countries, and you know. Other you know cities and stuff like that, and I could tour. I could get an agent and a manager and all of that. So it's good.
1: So over your career, things have obviously worked out very well. You played with so many different people in different genres, from Yo Yo Ma to Sting, to the L.A. Philharmonic. You know Ron Carter. All these guys. How do you how do you toggle all of these different genres and different um, levels of music? How does that work in your brain?
2: The, um. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess I just play or write what I feel is appropriate for the um, the job at hand or the, the, the music at hand, you know, and I base that on having listened to the person's or the, 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 the style of music before and they're just kind of approximating it, you know. Uh, with Sting, you know, it's pretty easy. You know, I was playing with him with Chris Bode's band, and it was kind of, you know, determined what his music was. I'd heard it, obviously, you know. And with Yo-Yo Ma, um, he asked me to do an arrangement of a kind of a jazzed-up arrangement of my favorite things, you know, that featured him and Chris Bowie. So I just kind of, like, wrote what I thought was appropriate, you know, what, what I thought. I guess I had a, a good instinct about it. Because they liked it, you know. So I don't know. I, I mean, it's a hard question to answer because I guess I love many genres of music and want to write in those genres and and will will do whatever genre or subgenre fits the is appropriate for the situation.
1: You know, you've you've garnered a lot of awards too, many Grammys many nominations many things have happened over your career was there one award not your favorite one but was there an award that you got that kind
2: of caught you off guard you didn't expect you know well yes there's a few like i you never like just expect to win every award you know like my 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 first grammy nomination was a surprise Um, like a real a shock to my system It, it was back in 1996 and it was for a song called "The Starry Night," and the album had just been like, you know, it was it was put out, and then about a month later, the there was a change, regime change in the label, and then the album was just like dumped, like no support or nothing, you know. So, and then so I thought it was a dead issue, and then one of the songs from that album got nominated for a Grammy. And so that was kind of a shock. The other, the, the major shock, though, was the Doris Duke Performing Artists Award. That one just came out of left field. And it was like the, the one that paid the most. I mean, it paid like a lot of money. And and it, it actually kind of saved me from going into a financial hole, you know? And And so it was a shock. It was like, somebody from up there really, you know, like, likes me. Nice. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about your career up to this point? You've you've seen a lot of
1: action. You've been all over, all over the place with your music, very prolific. How do you
2: feel about your career? I feel good, you know. I feel like, I mean, I'm happy with what I'm doing. You know, I just kind of sit down behind the piano and put your head down and get your pencil and your piece of paper and start scribbling on the paper. And you never look up to see if anybody's noticing, you know. And it's nice to know that people have noticed, you know. I remember there was this radio host, this talk radio host, and someone would say to him, how are you doing? And he said, "Um, better than most, not as good as some, you know. And... I kind of feel like that, you know. What's one
1: of the best jazz shows you've ever seen live? One one of those shows that really kind of opened some, oh, this kind of opened up your mind a little bit more to jazz that you saw live.
2: Well, there, there are about three or four shows that have been seminal events in my life. I would have to say seeing the M1BC group, the Herbie Hancock group, um, as a, thirteen year old kid at Shelly's manhole was one that had to be like nineteen seventy maybe a fourteen year old like nineteen seventy one seeing the m one group also seeing in, uh, much later um nineteen eighty nine seeing Pat Matheney's group at the will turn really kind of changed my whole conception of of writing for a jazz ensemble that was around the time he had just done Letter From Home. And um, so he had like those three albums, The the First Circle, um, Still Life Talking, and Letter From Home. And then he did a lot of stuff from those albums and stuff from previous albums. And it just blew my mind, you know. It was like the balance of extraordinary playing, Extraordinary um, compositions, extraordinary drama mixed with this um, technical, the 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 brilliance technically, like with the sound, with the lighting, with the drama of the of the music, you know, the singing, the percussion, Lyle Mays, you know, it just it, it made me really want to do that. So that was one. Um, also seeing. George Duke uh, and Billy Cobham with Alfonso Johnson and um, John Schofield in a, like, with, with that album, the Duke uh, Cobham project. Back in the 70s, I saw that. That was one. Return of Forever, seeing them at Royce Hall. It's a lot of them, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me let me ask you a general
1: question: Is is a practitioner of jazz, one that's dedicated your life to the craft? Why do you love
2: jazz? Why do I love jazz? I, I man, I, I really couldn't answer that. I mean, it's part of my DNA. I've heard it my whole life. I it's like saying, why do you speak English? You know, you've heard it your whole life, and that's the language that you know. It's just part of my DNA. It's part of what makes me American.
1: You know. So, what is one of the nicest things that a fan has ever said to you about your music?
2: Like, you've changed my life, or something, and hopefully in a positive way. But yes, you've changed my life. Or, they, or, or people have come up and cried, you know. Yes. Yeah. This is very meaningful to me. I have a friend, Morton Lauridsen, who wrote this probably the most performed choral piece. In the world right now, called Lux Aeterna, and it's a, and it's a, and it's an extraordinarily beautiful piece. It's unbelievably beautiful. And people, he got an email one time where he said that um, the, the, his piece stopped someone from from committing suicide. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's like a real, that's a reward. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So let me ask you this. Everything's going to come down to this question to get a little bit at the essence of who you are. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, those that you play live for. But when you wake up and face the world, who are you? Who do you think you are? (laughs)
2: Who who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I can tell you who I think I am and... And I don't know who I am. I wake up, I'm a man. (laughs) I'm a black man, you know. Uh, A father, you know. Uh, And a friend to many people. You know, an ex-husband. A a brother to my sisters. A son to my parents who are no longer with me, you know. And, you know, then I'm a musician, you know. I'm a guy who... um, I don't know. I, I like to say I'm good at what I do and, uh, and leave it at that.
1: I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. Billy, thank you for taking a minute to talk about your music, your life, and opening up. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you. Thanks for the interview.
0: Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, L.A., and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Billy for his cool, his stories, and all that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, visit neonjazz at youtube.com, and for everything neon jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
2: On Jez.